Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today I'm covering another Canadian case. I've been on kind of a Canadian streak lately. I promise I'll break it with the next episode and we'll go across borders. The amazing true crime content creator, Christy Lee, host of Canadian True Crime, recently covered this case that I'm gonna be talking about today, and she published her episode in November, 2021 but it was suggested to me by someone that I know personally, so I had to do it. If you're interested, I will link the Canadian True Crime website and podcast episode on my website, along with the other sources that I will use for this episode at crimopediapod.ca. Some of the finer details in this case come directly from Christy Lee's reporting, so I would definitely give her episode a listen. Today, I'm going to be telling you about Jesse Imason, a young man from Windsor, Ontario, who would go on a murder spree spanning just under a week that resulted in the lives of three people being lost. Jesse would be successful in evading a Canada-wide manhunt for him until, well, we'll get to that. So we have a lot of stuff to talk about today, so I think it's a good time to jump right in. Jesse Imason was known to many from an early age to be quite a troublemaker. He was raised for the first part of his life in a small town called Amherstburg by Windsor, Ontario, which is a city right on the Canada-USA border. And his babysitter during his early years, Cheryl White, recalls Jesse as being a quote-unquote little turd. Cheryl said that Jesse would chase her around the family home with a water gun while his parents were at work, and he was just overall a jokester. Jesse Imason was the oldest of three kids. He had a younger brother and sister. Both his mom and dad were working incredibly hard to try and raise their relatively large family. But many people who knew Jesse Imason personally throughout his life say that despite having a loving family and a bubbling personality, he always felt alone. There was sort of an ambient sadness about Jesse despite his extremely extroverted and spunky nature. And it wasn't really something that anyone could unpack with Jesse at such a young age. When Jesse was only nine years old, in 1994, his father, Jeff Imason, who worked in construction, would commit suicide. It's unclear from my research what the motive was for Jeff Imason to take his own life, but either way, his young son, Jesse, would end up telling friends that it was him who tragically found his father's lifeless body. Given that it was clear to some people that Jesse was already struggling mentally at such a young age and then having to find his father's body at only nine years old after he committed suicide, Jesse was off to kind of a rough start. Understandably, Jesse reportedly took his father's suicide really, really hard. And his way of coping as such a young child was seemingly to take his jokester antics to the next level and begin to lash out. Before too long, Jesse Imason became a lot to handle, as if he already wasn't making his babysitter, Cheryl White, work very hard for the money she earned in their home with all of his antics. After Jeff Imason's suicide, given the stress on the surviving Imason family, especially Jesse's mom, who was now juggling three children in a single-income household on top of grieving her husband, it was decided that Jesse's mom's best chance at survival was to give Jesse, not his siblings, up to children's aid. Jesse Imason was already pretty rambunctious to begin with, and now he had started lashing out to cope with his father's death. 
Whether you agree with this decision or not, it was the one that was made, and unfortunately, it would drastically change the trajectory of Jesse Imason's life. Jesse would end up in Leamington at a foster home approximately 40 minutes away from the town of Amherstburg, and he would be enrolled in Leamington's Queen Elizabeth Elementary School. What was intended to be a fresh start for Jesse ended up making quite a large impression on the kids around him at school. The ones who knew him during this time said that although he didn't talk much about his past, they knew that he did have a hard life. They could kind of just tell. But like classic Jesse, he still remained his rambunctious self. Jesse's over-the-top way of being and tendency to have outbursts would continue and further develop, and eventually Jesse's foster family in Leamington were also unable to keep up with him while ensuring adequate childcare. It didn't take very long for Jesse to become a ward of the state, with his foster parents being unable to deliver the childcare that they promised, and so Jesse was sent to a child mental health treatment center in Windsor, Ontario called Maryvale. According to their website, Maryvale's mission is to improve the quality of life for youth and families experiencing mental health distress in the Windsor, Ontario area. And although it's unclear whether or not Jesse Imason received any formal mental health diagnoses, I think it's safe to assume that the people in his life were concerned for his well-being and that's why he ended up at this treatment center. Jesse's outbursts had went from silly and childlike to angry and, frankly, violent. He would use fear tactics to maintain control over adults, overseeing his care, and demanding respect, beginning as early as his preteen years. By the time Jesse Imason was 18 years old, he was violent, suffering with anger issues and likely some unknown mental health struggles, and he was also dealing with the death of his father still, and had become a frequent flyer in and out of correctional facilities. Jesse was engaging in petty crimes, theft and robbery, possession of stolen goods, stuff like that. To top it all off, Jesse had begun dabbling in substance use to self-medicate pretty early in life. Jumping back to his preteen years, Jesse Imason would end up back in Amherstburg sometimes. He would try to stay in contact with family and have temporary stays with his uncle and aunt who lived there. Unfortunately, however, temporary stays and irregular contact with family was not enough to keep Jesse regulated. And as things continuously spiraled out of control for him, he would end up dropping out of high school in grade 11. At this time in his life, people say that Jesse Imason loved to party. Even in the most inappropriate of settings, he would typically be seen with a beer in his hand and a cigarette in his mouth. But despite his violent tendencies and his now less than favorable course in life, he still maintained a close circle of friends and was known for always being able to charm the women. As well, despite Jesse obviously having problems, People say that he wasn't a bully overall, but he definitely was a bad boy. He was tough, but not rough with people, and if you were nice to him, he was nice to you right back. But there was no doubt that Jesse still had a hard time with authority figures, and in public settings especially. He had been struggling to regulate his emotions for almost a decade after losing his father. And although Jesse had good friends and had a good reputation among those friends, he did have a bad reputation in southwestern Ontario. It wasn't very uncommon for Jesse to cause a scene when he was out in public. He would end up actually getting in trouble at a bar called Shooters and be permanently banned. He would also collect tattoos all over his body, and despite his loyalty to a tattoo artist, the guy couldn't stand Jesse. The artist said that Jesse was high-strung and hyper, and he could barely sit still during an appointment. He was just too much to be around for a long tattoo sessions. 
It seemed like to the average person who wasn't really close to Jesse that Jesse was the type of person that people can handle in small doses. His inability to sit still could have been due to his natural high energy nature, like I mentioned, the same one that ended up with his mom turning him over to children's aid, but I can't imagine that it was made any better by his chronic substance use. Fast forwarding a little while, like his dad, Jesse would end up cultivating a career in construction, alongside other odd jobs, as that was the only way he knew how to keep his feet on the ground amongst his struggles in life. Because of the fact that I mentioned that Jesse Imason was a frequent flyer in the criminal justice system, as well as the fact that he'd never graduated high school, you can imagine it was pretty difficult for him to hold down a job, but I don't think it was for lack of trying. One thing I haven't mentioned to you yet is that Jesse Imason had an on and off girlfriend. Her name goes unreported, so I'm gonna keep it that way. This part of Jesse's life history is kind of fuzzy to me based on the news reporting, but based on my own piecing together of this timeline, I believe that it was in 2004 when Jesse Imason would enroll in a police foundations program at CDI College. The fact that he has a girlfriend and the fact that he enrolled in college kind of seem irrelevant to each other, but bear with me. And again, this part of the timeline is kind of fuzzy for me, but I'm gonna go with the timeline that I deduced from the news. In 2004, when Jesse Imason would have enrolled in college in September, sometime after earning his high school credits to graduate, he would run into his old babysitter, Cheryl White. He confided in Cheryl that he was worried his on and off girlfriend was pregnant, and he was concerned about finding a stable job to provide for the child. After, I presume graduating in 2005, Jesse would leave to Whistler, British Columbia, a province on the very opposite side of the country than Ontario, to try to find this stable work. This timeline makes sense to me because at the time Jesse Imason committed the crimes which this entire episode is based on in 2007, news articles claim that his daughter was two years old. And so it makes sense that she was born in 2005 because Jesse would only return from Whistler, BC after she was born, possibly with some money from working, but he also brought back a newfound cocaine habit. Jesse would once again find himself incarcerated in 2006 for breaking and entering, despite being freshly invested in a career in law enforcement, where he would spend six months in jail while attempting to continue a relationship with his daughter's mother. This period of incarceration didn't seem to help alleviate Jesse's addiction, however, and in 2007, he would enter into rehab in Windsor. However, the day he graduated from the rehabilitation program, he was seen drinking with friends in a downtown Windsor bar. Clearly, Jesse's life was pretty chaotic and his struggles were long-lasting. His attempts at education and sobriety, as well as the birth of a child, were not enough to help him get out of it. Jesse Imason would eventually move into a boarding house in 2007 in downtown Windsor in the early days of that summer. He would go on to tell the landlords that he was ex-military, something we know just isn't true. Regardless, the landlords, an elderly couple, said he was polite and quiet, mostly keeping to himself, and he had plenty of pictures of his daughter in his room. They did note, however, that the relationship between his on-again, off-again girlfriend was a mix of very high highs and very low lows, oftentimes with one of them threatening to fight for custody of their daughter in court. And it was clear that after all these years, his life was still pretty tumultuous. It would be approximately three weeks into living at this boarding house when Jesse mentioned to a friend, Nick, 
that he had a new idea on how to make some quick cash. If there was one thing about Jesse, he was consistently chasing money. He told his friends that he thought all men were perverts, and despite himself not being gay, he thought given his physique and previous success at charming women, something he was pretty well known for, he could become a male nude dancer at a gay bar and possibly walk away with tons and tons of cash. Jesse decided to pursue this venture on July 17th in 2007 when he made a visit to a local bar called The Tap in the town of LaSalle, which is pretty close to Windsor. Staff at The Tap say they had never seen Jesse before, but he approached the employees saying that he was strapped for cash and was interested in becoming a dancer. After the owner, Eddie Ann, got some bad vibes from Jesse, the decision was already subconsciously made that they would not hire him but they let Jesse get on stage and do a little sample dance routine and begin filling out an application, one that he would never finish because he didn't have the proper ID on him that he needed. But Jesse said that rest assured, he would return to the tap the next day with all of the necessary things he needed to complete this job application. In the meantime, he struck up a conversation with the 25-year-old college student and bartender at the tap, Carlos Rivera. Carlos was attending St. Clair College in Windsor for architecture, and at the time of meeting Jesse, was working on publishing a series of poems. Carlos was known to be a talented artist. He painted and sketched, but was more fond of giving those pieces away as sentimental gifts, a touching detail that I learned about Carlos from the Canadian True Crime podcast. His family had emigrated from El Salvador when Carlos was younger, and he was always working tirelessly to create a livelihood and set a good example for his three younger brothers. Carlos was kind, passionate about his work, and was on a fast track towards success in architecture and design. Although the rest of the staff at the tap didn't have a good feeling about Jesse, Carlos, an openly gay man, was interested and found himself talking to Jesse and having drinks with him until the bar closed. But after closing time, Carlos Rivera and Jesse Imason agreed to keep the party going. So the two left the tap in Carlos's 1996 silver Honda Civic. The two would arrive at the house of another one of Jesse's friends, and the three of them stayed up until approximately 6 in the morning on July 18th, drinking and talking. When it was finally time to settle down, both Jesse and Carlos were pretty drunk, but Jesse was less so, so he would drive Carlos back to his boarding house room in Carlos's car. This would be the last time that Carlos Rivera was ever seen alive. Later that morning on the 18th, one of Jesse's cousins would receive a phone call from him and he was clearly distraught. Apparently, Jesse was in tears, he was frantic, and he said he needed to talk to somebody. So him and his cousin arranged for Jesse to pick up his cousin driving Carlos's 1996 silver Honda. The two would drive to the cemetery where Jesse Imason's father, Jeff, who had committed suicide in 1994, was buried. It was then when Jesse would confess to his cousin that he did something bad. Jesse would go on to tell his cousin a story that began with meeting Carlos Rivera at the top and ended with Carlos Rivera losing his life. Jesse Imason would later go on to tell police that Carlos began touching him inappropriately and coming on to him, but we'll get there. But at this point in time, on July 18th, 2007, Jesse Imason was officially on the run. 
he had left Carlos's body in that bedroom in his boarding house, and he knew it was only a matter of time before his body would be found. And because of its location, it immediately implicates him in the crime. So after departing with this cousin, Jesse Imason would continue to take Carlos's car and drive over 200 kilometers, or approximately 124 miles, north to a town called Grand Bend. Later that evening, still on the 18th, Carlos would not turn up for his evening shift at the tap and wasn't answering his phone. His boss did not hesitate to inform LaSalle police that Carlos was missing and willingly gave up a description of Jesse Imason, considering he was the last person Carlos was seen with. At this point, police knew exactly who they were looking for and they also had a description of Carlos's car, the same one that we all know Jesse Imason was still driving. Once police got a good grasp of who Jesse was and his description, they spoke to some of his known associates and discovered that he was living at that boarding house in downtown Windsor. By the time they arrived at the boarding house on July 19th, Jesse was evidently already gone as we know, but once they gained access into his room, they saw exactly what they needed to see in order to verify that this was in fact the guy that they were looking for. Windsor police discovered the lifeless body of Carlos Rivera. He had been strangled on Jesse's bed and covered with a blanket. When they uncovered it, there was still a belt tied around Carlos's neck. This made Jesse the number one suspect in Carlos's death, and with his car now missing as well, police could safely assume that Jesse had made a run for it. And he had. Like I mentioned before, he had taken Carlos's 1996 silver Honda and driven all the way to Grand Bend, Ontario. But unfortunately, by the time Carlos was found, it had already been at least 24 hours since he had died, and in the eyes of police, Jesse could have been anywhere. In order to combat this, police put Jesse Imason's face all over the news as a suspect. Police urged the public in Ontario to be careful and on the lookout. When someone is on the run for a crime like this, for murder, they clearly have nothing to lose, and that can make people especially dangerous. Someone who's committed a murder is obviously known to be violent, but now it's anticipated that they're going to be unpredictable. Before Carlos was even found, Jesse had made his way to Grand Bend and had hooked up with a young girl from the general area, someone who in the Canadian True Crime podcast and in some other documents is called Lucy, but on other sites, she's called Lindsay. Since I've encouraged you all to listen to the episode on this case delivered by Christy Lee's Canadian True Crime, for the sake of consistency, I'm also going to call her Lucy. Jesse Imason met Lucy at a bar, which was apparently the first stop he made after escaping from LaSalle and arriving in Grand Bend. He wanted to go drinking, knowing likely that he would be enjoying his last few nights of freedom. Lucy would hang out with Jesse from the night of July 18th when he arrived until the 20th, spending two days in her family home. In some reports, Lucy is referred to as a teenager, but I'm not exactly sure how old she was when all of this happened. Given this fact, it makes sense that she was living at home with her parents. And Jesse was a fairly young guy himself. In 2007, he was only 22 years old. And so I guess according to Lucy's parents, it was an acceptable pairing and they let him stay in the family home for two whole days. But it would be on July 20th in 2007 when Lucy's parents would see Jesse's face on the news, wanted on suspicion of the murder of Carlos Rivera, where they obviously began to panic. But instead of calling police, the family decided to instead kick Jesse out of their house and have Lucy drop him off somewhere random. 
Lucy would take Jesse Imason to a field in an area called Stephen Township, just east of Grand Bend off of Mount Carmel Line, a central roadway that branches off of one of the major highways in Ontario. From here, once he was dropped off, Jesse would roam the Mount Carmel area near Grand Bend until he found a random shed on a farm property and broke into it for shelter. Inside of this shed, Jesse Imason found a 22 caliber rifle and over 200 rounds of ammunition, which would evidently prove to be the worst possible thing that he could get his hands on. Like I mentioned, although Lucy and her family initially did not report this incident to police, despite knowing full well they had a fugitive in their home, they decided to change their mind on the following day, July 21st, when I guess either she was encouraged by her parents or she went by herself, to make a report to Crime Stopper saying that Jesse Imason had been seen in the area of Grand Bend. I believe Lucy's initial story to police was that she just saw him in the field where she actually dropped him off, therefore not implicating her in any way. She would later help police search that area, but it was to no avail. Obviously, we know Jesse had taken harbor in a farm shed. However, police were able to locate Carlos Rivera's 1996 silver Honda, abandoned in Grand Bend at the same bar where Jesse Imason met Lucy for the first time. Police would continue to search for Jesse Imason and would continue to blast his face all over news media. Even though Lucy had reported a sighting of him in the Mount Carmel area, police knew that Jesse Imason, armed with the silver Honda, could honestly have been anywhere. However, at the same time this search was being conducted for Jesse Imason, approximately 52 kilometers or 32 miles away in the city of London, Ontario, a parallel story would begin to unfold that would implicate an elderly couple in the whirlwind of violence that Jesse Imason was about to unleash. Living in the Mount Carmel area on a farmland property were 72-year-old Bill Regier and his wife, 73-year-old Helene. This Mount Carmel farmhouse was actually Bill's childhood home, where the couple lived for many years, being very active in their community and church. Many newspaper articles and, frankly, people I've talked to who knew the Regiers said that they were pillars in the community, and the couple were described as inseparable. They were devout in their Catholic faith and devout to each other. Together, they raised six children and 16 grandchildren in the area where Bill Regier himself grew up. Everybody knew them through church, through family friends, through the Catholic Women's League and Knights of Columbus. The Regiers were very popular and very well-liked. It would be on July 22nd of 2007 when Bill and Helene were spending the evening at a family dinner in the nearby city of London, Ontario. Like I said, it's approximately 52 kilometers or 41 minutes away from the Mount Carmel area. The Regiers had gathered in London, Ontario for Sunday dinner with their family. This was a regular occasion for them and it was unlike any other. They made plans for their son, Dan, to come visit the farmhouse in Mount Carmel the very next day on the 23rd. And after the dinner was over, Everybody was thinking about what their daily routine would be like starting Monday. For Bill and Helene, that routine would mean visiting family and friends, attending mass, community service, and enjoying their quiet farmhouse throughout the week. However, unbeknownst to the Regiers, back at their farmhouse in Mount Carmel, Jesse Imason had been hiding in their farm shed for a few days now. On the evening of July 22nd, once Bill and Helene had returned home from their Sunday dinner in London, Jesse Imason would smash through a window in their home, 
climb inside, and come across the Regiers. Jesse startled the couple, obviously, but he wouldn't waste any time with pleasantries, and he began immediately ordering both of them into the basement of their home at gunpoint with the 22 caliber rifle that he had stumbled upon in a shed. There was nothing Helene or Bill could do as they watched Jesse frantically search for something to tie them up with. At this point, all Jesse Imason wanted was money and a way out, and yet the situation would escalate to a level of violence completely unpredicted by the circumstances. Helene would watch in horror as Jessie began to string up her husband Bill to the rafters in the basement. Some reports compare Bill being hung to the rafters like someone being hung from a crucifix. Shortly thereafter, Helene was shot four times after being bound and left on the floor. Bill would be shot twice in the chest, left hanging from the rafters on display in the basement of his childhood home. After murdering the Regiers, Jesse would rummage through their farmhouse and take whatever he could get his hands on that he felt was useful. Clothes, food, and their GMC pickup truck, and once again, Jesse was on the run. The next day, on July 23rd, 2007, Bill and Helene's son, Dan, arrived at their farmhouse as planned, only to find a broken window in a missing pickup truck. It didn't take Dan very long before he knew what he was looking at was very suspicious. And that same day, he was able to locate the bodies of his mom and dad. Thankfully, police were able to conclusively link a shoe print size 12 at the scene of the Rigier murders, one that matched the same size and the same pattern of shoe that Jesse was known to have. Once again, police felt like they were sure that they knew who they were looking for, and now they were also sure that they knew where he ended up after he killed Carlos Rivera. Police had already been searching high and low for Jesse Imason. As you'll recall, he was all over the news and search efforts were abundant. But now that two other people had been found deceased, the search for Jesse Imason was now national. The entire country of Canada would recognize Jesse Imason's face and name and they knew not to interact with him if they saw him. He was clearly dangerous. And now, he was officially considered a spree killer, and who knows when this would end. When the news broke about the Rugiers being killed, the surrounding community was in shock and denial. Why would anyone do this to them? They were arguably as wholesome as people can possibly get. They were caring and exceptionally generous, very active in their church community. Ontario Provincial Police Inspector Dave Cardwell was even quoted as saying that the Regiers were the type to give you the shirt off of their own backs if you needed it. Police were arguably not as confused as the Mount Carmel and surrounding area's population. They knew that Jesse Imason's motive was likely desperation, and now, because he was becoming increasingly even more unpredictable, it was possible that the greater Canadian population was now in danger. That young girl that Jesse Imason had met in a bar in Grand Bend, Lucy, who had dropped him off in a field and tried to help police search that area, did eventually come clean about the fact that she did not only just see Jesse, but she interacted with him quite a lot, for two days actually, and eventually she was the one to leave him in that Stephen Township field. She then insisted to police that all she knew about Jesse's whereabouts now was that he may be trying to head north based on a conversation they had, but that's all she knew. 
The media weren't convinced, however, and began hounding her after it came to light that instead of calling police upon learning he was a wanted murderer, she drove him to a secondary location so he could continue running. But Lucy insisted that she did not know any more than what she already told police. At this time, alternative tips from the community had begun flowing in steadily, with Jesse's own family telling police that he could very easily be headed back out west, towards Whistler, BC, the place he had spent several months trying to find work and instead finding cocaine during the later part of his baby mother's pregnancy. This was totally contrary to what Lucy had just told police that Jesse might be heading north, but this theory made sense. Jesse Imerson had a history out there and had contacts, but it turns out he was not headed north or west. It turns out Jesse Imerson was actually heading east. All the while he was on the run, police were struggling to find a connection between Jesse, Carlos Rivera, and the Regiers. The three victims had nothing in common with each other or with Jesse, which is what made this situation all the more terrifying for residents of Ontario. Similar to the serial murders of Alan Legere, no one knew where Jesse Imerson was headed next or who his next victim would be. Who would be the next person standing between him and furthering his journey on the run? With the month of August looming over residents of Ontario, it would take approximately 10 days into the manhunt for Jesse Imerson when a resident in Portage du Fort, a small city right on the border between the provinces of Ontario and Quebec, near Canada's capital city of Ottawa, would find the Regier's GMC pickup truck. From my understanding, Portage du Fort is somewhat of a cottage town. I'm not sure if I would call it sleepy, but I think I would definitely call it relaxed. Plenty of the residents were seasonal, returning to their full-time homes elsewhere in Canada during most of the year and retreating to their cottages during the summertime and winter holidays. I don't think Jesse Imerson knew this about the Portage du Fort area when he decided to make a pit stop here and abandon the Regier's truck. Any small town full of cottages is likely going to be chock full of nothing but familiar faces for the residents. Any unfamiliar car or person is likely to be noticed. That GMC pickup truck was noticed. Alongside the clothes, Jesse Imerson was seen to have been wearing the previous days when reports of sightings were coming in to the Ontario Provincial Police. However, despite the truck being found alongside some of Jesse Imerson's belongings, Ontario police were unable to get this information to the Quebec police until the next day. Why, I don't know, but it matters because the city of Portage du Fort sits directly on the border, arguably more inside of Quebec. So we have to consider jurisdiction. Nonetheless, the stall in police work didn't seem to affect the investigation too badly because on the 12th day of the Canada-wide manhunt for Jesse Imerson, police would finally catch a break. Jesse Imerson had been evading police in this manhunt for 12 entire days. He was staying in abandoned buildings and sheds, inside of people's seasonal cottage homes, just trying to lay low after senselessly killing three people. That was until a concerned Portage du Fort resident noticed a figure in his neighbor's window. He knew this neighbor was not at his cottage and by all accounts, it was supposed to be empty. This resident could see someone inside of his neighbor's cottage watching TV and could even hear the TV blaring all the way from his own residence. When the intruder noticed that he was being observed by this resident, 
he jumped behind a pole in the house and waited for the concerned neighbor to apparently stop watching. Completely unknown to the people of Portage du Fort, this intruder had been making himself very comfortable in unoccupied residences, and this house he was just spotted in was not the first. This intruder, as you may have guessed, was Jesse Imason, and I'm sure he knew immediately after he was spotted that it was time to make a run for it. Jesse had previously approached this locked cottage and decided to enter it by climbing onto the roof and breaking through a window in a cathedral-style ceiling before dropping down into the cottage about 15 feet from the roof just to get inside. But after all of that, once he was spotted, it was time to split. The neighbor, however, didn't recognize Jesse or really even put two and two together. But he did think, however, that whoever this intruder was, he could have been the one responsible for the string of break-ins that Portage du Fort had been experiencing in the last week or so. Despite not recognizing Jesse Imason, this was true. He had been responsible for breaking into various cottages and buildings for shelter while he was on the run. I'm sure this neighbor had no idea why these burglaries were happening though. For all he was concerned, the person breaking into the cottages in the area could have been some punk kid. But instead, it was a full-grown 22-year-old Jesse Imason who was wanted for triple homicide. Since Jesse knew it was time to jump ship, he was seen exiting the residence promptly, but also calmly not to raise any additional alarm bells, and he was also carrying what looked like a gun. Jesse was headed towards what seemed like a country road into a wooded area, but at this point, police had already been notified that there was an intruder present, so whether or not he decided to duck out into the woods, police were going to search everywhere to find him. Local police in the area were able to get a hold of Ontario Provincial Police once I'm sure they realized who exactly they were likely dealing with. And after chasing Jesse deep into the wooded area and after a brief standoff, Jesse Imason laid down in the woods beside the loaded gun he was carrying and was arrested in Portage du Fort without incident. Unfortunately, Jesse's seamless arrest was not a clue indicating remorse or any sort of willingness to give up on his mission. While in custody of the Ontario Provincial Police, Jesse Imason began complaining of stomach pains, so police arranged to have him initially transported to a local hospital before being interrogated. In the transport van, Jesse Imason was sat beside someone who had also been detained, except this person was an undercover officer and was in charge of getting Jesse to start talking. And talk, Jesse certainly did. Jesse Imason would go on to tell this undercover officer on a tangent that he had absolutely no regrets about what he had done. I think we can all gather from this that Jesse would have more than likely continued hurting people had he not been caught. So it was no surprise that Jesse's family, the police, and the greater Canadian population were all very happy that the arrest went down this way. With his violent, unpredictable past, the police and civilians were concerned that when Jesse Imason was found, he would erupt into violence again. That's why people in Canada were warned that if they saw Jesse Imason, they really shouldn't approach him. As well, given his family history of suicide and how hard his father's death in 1994 had hit Jesse, the Imason family was worried that once he was caught, he would try to take his own life, either on his own or by suicide by cop. 
The way Jesse was arrested was undoubtedly the best case scenario, especially for the owner of the cottage that Jesse was spotted at, Bob Simpson, who said in a news article that he was very thankful that he didn't run into Jesse like the Regiers had. It would be over an entire year later, in October of 2008, when Jesse was 23 years old, the same age that I am now, where he would plead guilty to three counts of second-degree murder, not guilty to one count of first-degree murder, and would subsequently be sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for at least 25 years. I personally found it kind of interesting that there was a distinction here between first and second-degree murder charges. But when I looked into it, I found that DNA evidence police collected at the scene of all three murders proved he had committed murder indeed, but there was no proof found anywhere that he had planned any of them beforehand. I think it makes more sense that the murders of Bill and Helene Regier were crimes of opportunity. However, I found this really interesting in regards to the murder of Carlos Rivera. Jesse had spent the entire night with him after they first met. And if Jesse had profusely proclaimed to all of his friends to not be homosexual, then I don't really see another reason why Jesse brought Carlos back to his boarding house room. If Jesse had no intentions of hooking up with Carlos, then why did he want him to come back to his bedroom? The only other reason I can think of is to kill him. But I guess the police could not narrow down any real concrete evidence to suggest that there was really any planning involved at all. Jesse Imason's defense attorney, Don Crawford, was quoted as saying that he believes things just quote-unquote got out of hand, thus the distinction between first and second degree murder. But despite getting convicted for second degree murder and not first, times three, he was still given a life sentence. Three of them, actually, one for each murder, that would be served concurrently. I think what strikes me the most about this case is that none of this would have ever happened if Jesse Imason didn't randomly decide to murder Carlos Rivera. Countless people have tried to understand why Jesse Imason did what he did. Did it have to do with the pent-up anger he had from his father's death? Or was it something to do with the fact that his mother gave him and not his siblings up to children's aid? According to Jesse himself, his actions, at least in some part, stem from abuse he suffered at the hands of a former child and youth worker named Tony Doe in court documents at the Maryvale Adolescent and Family Services in Windsor. If you recall, this was the place Jesse was sent to after becoming a ward of the state and leaving his foster family in Leamington. Jesse also alleges that he was sexually abused by Father Howarth, a now-deceased former Catholic priest in London, Ontario as well. In 2016, all of these allegations were brought to court, and in September, a jury found Maryvale liable for the sexual assaults that occurred against Jesse Imason by that former child and youth worker. However, the jury did not accept the same claims made against the Roman Catholic priest. Nevertheless, with so many cases that I cover, there's always this overarching, looming question. Is trauma ever going to be an excuse to inflict pain on somebody else? Personally, I don't think so. I think it makes things understandable, but not excusable. I see why Jesse was angry. I see why he had issues with authority. But I have no sympathy for someone who destroys the lives of so many people out of pure selfishness. Carlos Rivera was a flourishing architect an extremely talented artist, he was family-oriented, a hard worker, and well-loved by everyone who knew him, especially his younger brothers who admired him. 
Like I mentioned before, Carlos Rivera was on a fast track to success and had already touched so many people in his community. And it's not his fault that Jesse Imerson had a rough go in life. So why did all of Jesse's pent up anger end up being taken out on him? The same goes for Bill and Helene Regier, who were quite literally pillars in their Mount Carmel community. The Regier family had been living in the same place for generations, with their children and grandchildren spreading out across southwestern Ontario, touching the lives of, again, everyone who knew them, and even furthering the legacy of Bill and Helene Regier. By all accounts, they had a beautiful, healthy marriage, were very active in their community, and had no signs of slowing down. Bill and Helene had already been there for the birth of five great-grandchildren, with possibly many more to come. It's impossible to justify taking this all away from someone. Even though there's no denying that Jesse Imerson had a really hard life, I still don't understand how a combination of his unique life experiences resulted in him murdering three innocent people. Thank you for listening to another episode of Crimopedia. Cases like this one where the violence is so random and senseless, are just exceptionally tragic to me. But I think if there's anything to take away from today's case, it's that random people are never going to be responsible for bearing the brunt or burden of your personal hardships. You're not responsible for anything that happens to you, but taking accountability for how you heal those traumas, that is your responsibility. Don't ever be afraid to ask for help. People's pain should never have to escalate to something like this. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at CrimopediaPod and check out my website for a case suggestion forum at CrimopediaPod.ca. Also on my website, you'll find all of the source material for this episode like always, and that's where I'll be linking the Canadian True Crime Podcast episode on this case. I think that's all from me today, everyone. Stay safe, and I will see you here for the next one. Thank you.